like Jason said, I've been working with Belmont students. This is actually my 13th year uh, working with, with students with RUF. And one of the things that we love to do are sponsor convos. Because one of the con con convictions of RUF is that the Christian faith connects to all of life. Now, I understand and I know that not all of you are Christians by any means. This is a faith development convo, though. What that means is I'm going to seek to help you better understand whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, whether you're not sure, or what you think about Christianity. Wherever you're at in that, I think it's helpful for you to hear from the vantage point of Christian faith what Christianity has to say about popular culture. I think that's important because popular culture is one of the most powerful influences and one of the most powerful things that we deal with in everyday life. And for way, way too many years and for too many Christians that I know, there's this big disconnect between our faith and popular culture. We tend to think that you know, Christianity has to do with quiet times and reading our Bible and prayer and maybe witnessing to our roommates. And if you're not a Christian, these are kind of things that Christians talk about. There's certain, a certain number of things that Christians think are Christian things. And then there's all of the, the rest of life. One of the concerns of RUF is that those, those dots get connected more and more. Because one of the central convictions of the Bible is that Christianity does connect to all of life. That doesn't mean that the Bible tells us everything that we need to know, but it does speak truly where it speaks, and it does give us a framework for understanding all of life, and I hope to show you what that framework is and how it helps us, I think, um, have a greater appreciation of popular culture and why it's so powerful in our lives. The other day, I, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and he mentioned that he had met students that used to be involved in RUF. Actually, the guy had been involved in RUF, and he married a girl who was from a church tradition that tended to belittle popular culture and tended to take the approach that popular culture is an evil thing and we really shouldn't be involved in it. And the more, the more you shield yourself from popular culture, the more holy you'll be. And these two folks got married and met this pastor friend of mine. They, they graduated, good, goodness, easy six, seven years ago. And it was interesting, I, I was talking to my pastor friend and I said, oh, you know, so you got to know them a little bit. I said, it's interesting, I was, I was kind of surprised when they got married because they had some really different views about theology and about Christianity and, and particularly this idea about culture and how you relate to culture. The one guy, you know, music and pop culture was his life and the girl came from this church tradition where they really kind of looked down upon popular culture. And he said, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, we were just sitting around dinner. They'd been over to this pastor's house. We're sitting around at dinner talking and uh, I, I happened to mention something about Harry Potter and asked the girl if she'd read Harry Potter. And her answer was, thankfully not. <laughs> thankfully not. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, not just a, a sense that why would any Christian read that, but it would be beneath me to read that, and it would probably be unchristian. And fortunately, I've kept myself unstained and untainted from this worldly novel. Um, I'll let you know that I read the Harry Potter books, and I found them really wonderful. Um, so if you think that, you know, that I'm a bad Christian, I guess we can talk about that later. Um, hopefully the things I say today will help you understand maybe why I found those books so powerful. It's not just because they have Christian metaphors and Christian themes. I believe, actually, that all of life and all of culture is connected to what God has said. What the Bible says as a basic framework for the way Christians should understand the world, is that all that exists was spoken into being by God when he said, let there be 
let there be, let there be. The first chapters of Genesis describe this creation, but they describe it in a way where it says that God spoke it into being. And later in the Bible, this theme gets picked up in Psalm 19, where it talks about how all of creation, the heavens, declare your glory. And the word used there in the Hebrew is not just that that the heavens have some reflection of God's glory if you peer into them and you intently study them. No, the the word is actually much more active. The heavens declare your glory. If you will, they're actually preaching and proclaiming God's glory. The point the Bible's making is all of creation is stamped with meaning. And therefore, everything that we do, every, every bit of human culture is an interaction with what God has said. Whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, the Christian perspective on culture is that all of culture interacts with the stuff that God has made and stamped with meaning. And it's either an interaction where it receives the meaning that God has stamped on it, or it rejects the meaning. Or in all cases, actually, there's a mixture of acceptance and rejection. And there's this tension. Now, I find actually that, that Christians tend not to know that very well. Christians tend to be rather rather shallow in their understandings of some very key Christian doctrines that would really help them reflect better on popular culture. And unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but I actually find it uh, often more stimulating to read people who are not Christians who reflect upon popular culture more than Christians. That's a shame. But one of my favorite books is by a guy named Chuck Klosterman. He has a book called Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. Anybody read this book? Yeah, a few of you. Well, it's a great book. Um, It's hilarious, for one thing. Um, he's a writer. He actually writes quite a lot uh, for different magazines, writes for Spin a lot. He writes uh, for Sports Illustrated. Um, so quite a wide range of topics he writes upon. And this book, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, is, is basically his, his book reflecting on popular culture and how it connects to all of life. I love the way he starts. I want to read you, read you a start. Contrast this with um, the former student that I mentioned who, whose approach to Harry Potter was thankfully not. He says this, this is the first words in this book. There are actually two ways to look at life. Actually, that's not accurate. I suppose there are thousands of ways to look at life, but I tend to dwell on two of them. The first view is that nothing stays the same and nothing is inherently connected and that the only driving force in anyone's life is entropy. The second is that everything pretty much stays the same, more or less, and that everything is completely connected, even if we don't realize it. So two views, either nothing is connected or everything is connected, whether you realize it or not. He says, there are many mornings when I feel certain that the first perspective, that nothing's connected, is irrefutably true. I wake up. I feel the inescapable oppression of the sunlight pouring through my bedroom window, and I'm struck by the fact that I am alone, and that everyone is alone, and that everything I understood seven hours ago has already changed, and that I have to learn everything all over again. I guess I'm not a morning person. (laughs) However, that feeling always passes. In fact, it's usually completely gone before lunch. Every new minute of every new day seems to vaguely improve. And I suspect that's because the alternative view, that everything is ultimately like something else and that nothing and no one is autonomous, is probably the greater truth. The math does check out. The numbers do add up. The connections might not be hardwired into the superstructure of the universe, though I believe they are, but he he says they may not be. But it feels like they are. Whenever I put money into a jukebox... And everybody in the bar suddenly seems to be having the same conversation. And in that last moment before I fall asleep each night, I understand everything, capital E. The world is one interlocking machine, throbbing and pulsing, 
as a flawless organism. That's why I always hate falling asleep, he says. <laughs> what you're about to read is an evening book. It was written in those fleeting moments before I just fell asleep. And it's built on this ethos that nothing can be appreciated in a vacuum. Nothing can be appreciated in a vacuum. He talks about in this book all kinds of fascinating things. And he has this connection that all of the things that seem petty and unimportant or trivial are actually reflections upon things that are so much bigger and better. That's one of the core convictions of Christianity as it looks at the world. Now, the problem with thinking about, about pop culture from the Christian vantage point is that most Christian thinking on this er- in this area is really poor. And it suffers, actually, from some really bad theology, I'm ashamed to say. A lot of evangelical Christians... Um, really don't reflect very well upon their own theology and how it helps them understand things. And in particular, there's this view, and it's, it's actually a self-refuting view, that popular culture is either trivial or dangerous. It's either trivial or dangerous. In other words, um, like my, my former student said, thankfully not. I mean, she, she thinks that, you know, at the best, pop culture is so irrelevant or so unimportant, or so silly, that it's not, it's not worth our time being involved in, or she thinks that it's dangerous. Now, the funny thing is, you know, when you talk to a lot of Christians, particularly fundamentalist type of Christians, they tend to, to kind of think both of these things at the same time. And of course, if it's dangerous, it certainly can't be trivial. <laughs> and if it's trivial, then it's really not that dangerous, except that you're wasting your time being involved in something that doesn't matter so much. But Christians don't realize this. They begin to treat popular culture as either trivial or dangerous. And, of course, it can't be both at the same time. And we can't afford to believe this or embrace this idea if we are to proclaim that Christianity is true to all of life. Again, one of the core convictions of Christianity is it speaks to all of life, that it's not just a little bubble of reality over here and that there's all these other realities out here that aren't connected. Christianity believes that all of that stuff is connected. Christianity proclaims that it's the true story or the true meta narrative that makes sense of all of life. And one of the biggest problems with people taking that claim seriously in our day and age is that Christians who make that claim don't usually, don't usually model that they care very much about all of life. And in fact, popular culture, whether it be movies, or music, or advertising, or whatever, is is actually one of the most powerful influences in our world, particularly among younger people. And unfortunately, too many Christians have never been taught how to connect the dots between the power that they experience, the sense of transcendence even, that we experience through music and through movies, and um, uh, the way our deepest longings are touched. Now, the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men. That there is a longing, there is a longing to be connected or to understand our connection to something that's bigger than us. It's in the hearts of all people. And that's why what you experience in popular culture, Christianity would say, matters and is actually connected to what God has done and what God has made. Uh, too, too many Christians tend to take this, this approach to culture. We think that the best way to deal with popular culture is to isolate ourselves from it. 
We think of it as, as this dangerous influence. Even though the very last prayer that Jesus prayed while he was on this earth is in John chapter 17, the Gospel of John chapter 17, where Jesus prays that his followers and all those that would come to believe in him down through the ages, he prays that they would be in the world, but not of it. In the world. That means that Christians are to be rubbing shoulders with people who aren't Christians and interacting with them and imbibing of the same, the same stuff that, that other people are imbibing in. And yet, they are to be distinctive. They're not to be of the world, but they're to be in the world. Too often, Christians reverse that completely. They end up separating themselves from the world, from all the things that they think are dangerous, and then what happens curiously is they, they begin to not be very reflective on the influences that are going on in their life. They end up often becoming more like the world, adopting the values that would be, quote-unquote, worldly, without realizing it. I'll give you an example. I had a friend of mine uh, years ago who was a, a folk singer, Christian girl, but she didn't necessarily want to go into Christian music. And uh, at, at some point, she began to be courted by a number of record labels, some of them Christian, some of them non-Christians. What was really fascinating is that she was a woman who was not, not extremely beautiful, wonderfully talented singer and songwriter and guitar player, but not, not necessarily beautiful as the world would call beautiful. The, the secular folk record companies really didn't care. The Christian companies, that was a deal breaker. I, I had a friend not too long ago say, go, go to any record store and look, look at the album covers or the CD covers in the Christian section versus the non-Christian music section. And I defy you to find a popular Christian artist that's not beautiful. Why is it that looks seem to matter more in Christian music than they do in secular music? Doesn't that strike you as bizarre? If you've read the Bible at all, it should strike you as tragic. And yet the fact is, Christians think that they've separated themselves from this worldly music, and therefore they don't really think very much about the role of beauty and the importance of beauty. They tend to just to be very non-reflective upon that, and they don't think about it because they've separated themselves from all the things that they think are worldly. Therefore, they're very naive about the way worldly influences have crept into their worldview. There are a few Christian doctrines that I want to just touch upon today that I think help us think more maturely and more powerfully about, about Christian uh, or about popular culture. And they're these. There's a, a doctrine called common grace. There is the doctrine of sin. There is, which I'm going to particularly talk about what the Bible calls idolatry. And there is this idea of general revelation. So let me touch on those quickly and then um, I think we'll, ha we'll have some time for questions here in a little bit. Common grace. What is common grace? The Bible says that there are, there are basically two ways to understand grace, two aspects of grace. One is what we call particular grace. Uh, particular grace is where the Bible says, for instance, that while we were yet sinners, God sent his son to die for us. This is Paul's letter to Romans chapter 5. There is a particular love that God causes God to send his son to die in the place 
of sinners. There's a particular grace that calls sinners to God. This is called particular grace. It's this idea that God um, sheds his love upon, upon people and draws them to himself. And there's debates, of course, among Christians about how powerful that drawing influence is. Can it be resisted um, or not? And, and there's two theological camps about that. This isn't the time to get into that. But all Christians agree that there is this particular grace that saves people. That saves people. That brings them into a relationship with God. But the Bible also teaches, and what a lot of Christians don't understand, is the Bible also teaches a thing called common grace. The idea that even for those people who are not in a saving relationship with God, God still extends to them something that can only be called grace. We call it common grace because it's not saving grace, but it's also common in the sense that it's common to all people. There are a number of places where the Bible talks about this. Um, there's, there's a place where, um, by, uh, well, here it is um, in Acts chapter 14. Paul is preaching to non-Christian people. And I put this on your outline. If you have the outline, you can look at this. I'm going to basically pick up where it's underlined. It's Acts chapter 14, verse 15. Um, Paul, Paul says this. Actually, as he's preaching, the people who hear him think that he's one of the Greek gods. And so they begin to try to worship him, and Paul kind of freaks out and says this, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven. And crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So, what Paul is saying here to people who are not Christians is that God has given you gifts and has shown kindness to you. And he goes so far as to say he's even put joy into your hearts by this. Now, a lot of Christians don't know what to make of this because a lot of Christians think that the only people that have joy are Christians. And they can't understand why non-Christians can have wonderfully fulfilling relationships or can have wonderful, um, fulfilling lives filled with joy in all sorts of ways. They, they can't make sense of that. They think only Christians can experience joy. Only Christians are dealt with kindly by God. But the Bible says no. It really kind of blows up your categories about grace, doesn't it? To think that Paul says here that God gives, shows kindness to non-Christian people in two ways. Through rain, the basic, the creation, right? Rain is, is a good gift of God. But also crops. Now, what's significant about crops for our discussion today? Crops are cultivated. They're not purely natural gifts. I think a lot of people, even Christians, would say, well, you know, God has created this beautiful world. And even, even non-Christians can recognize that and benefit from that. But Paul goes farther than that. He actually says that the products of human culture, human cultivation, things like crops, are also an expression of God's kindness to non-Christian people. And that it's through these things that he gives joy into the hearts of unbelievers. And then Paul now is going to go on in this sermon and he's beginning to talk about why. I, he basically says, you've been given joy. I know it. 
because of the world you live in and because the way God is and the gifts that he's given has put joy in your heart, I want to explain to you where that joy came from and help you to understand that, that it's actually connected to something bigger than you. Right? Now this is a powerful thing. That word joy is a, techno, is a theologically loaded term. If you've ever read the book of Philippians, it's filled with this term joy. And it seems to be it seems to be something that only Christians possess if you read the Bible kind of superficially. But the same Paul who talks about the joy that he has from knowing God, even while he's in a prison cell, when he's writing the letter to the Philippians, says here in Acts 14 that God has given joy even to unbelievers. So that's this idea about common grace. And there are, there are other places where it talks about this too. Um, the Psalms have a number of places where they talk about it, but here's the point. If you're a Christian, you must recognize that God does give good gifts, even joy, to non-Christians. And we are called, actually in the Psalms, to admire and give thanks for those blessings, even worship God for them. It says that actually in Psalm 104, verse 14. Have you thought about that? See, we tend to think that worship can only be about specifically Christian things. As a matter of fact, John Calvin, who often is regarded as a pretty stodgy theologian, I don't know what you think about Calvin, but it's probably wrong. And it's probably been taught to you by people who have never actually read Calvin. It's been my experience. Um, Your English classes, you may hear some things about Calvin. But generally, the people have never read Calvin. They've just read people write about Calvin. Anyway, that's a topic for another day. But one of the things that Calvin says that often surprises Christians is there's a place in his book, The Christian Institutes, where he says that we are to honor truth wherever we find it because all truth is God's truth. And to fail to recognize it as truth and to praise God for it is actually to dishonor God and even to to perhaps blaspheme against the Holy Spirit who is the author of all truth. And you know, he actually says that in a context where he's talking about pagan philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. I don't know very many contemporary Christians who have that big of a view of truth. Most Christians tend to think that the only truth is completely possessed by Christians. And that's ridiculous. And it's unbiblical. And it sets up a huge barrier between people who aren't Christians. Because basically, if you hold that view, then what you have to think about everybody who's not a Christian is that they don't believe anything true. And that they don't think about anything deeply. And that they don't experience real joy. That's a pretty hard, pretty hard package to sell. <laughs> And you shouldn't be trying to sell it because it's not true. So I think if if Christians could begin to grapple with what the Bible says about common grace, I think it would really help us to actually take more seriously the world we live in and even the way non-Christians have experienced it. We can actually learn from them about it. The reason reason that, that all of creation matters and all of creation can be can be powerful and joy-giving is that, again, like I said at the very beginning, all of creation is stamped with meaning. This is the second idea I want to talk about, the idea of general revelation. We talked about common grace, now general revelation. General revelation is this idea that God speaks specifically through the Bible. Christians believe that. But Christians also believe, because the Bible teaches it, that God speaks through all creation. I mentioned to you Psalm 19, and I I put the verses down here. Um, 
But this is this idea that God is speaking, actually proclaiming, the Bible says, or preaching through all of reality. The heavens pour forth speech, and this revelation goes out to all people, whether they believe in God or not. This is what gives meaning to all human culture. Now, I just want to make a quick point here, because some of you all are involved in in studies like sociology, anthropology, cultural studies, those sorts of things. The the prevailing view in the academy, um, where Christian thinking is, is often not brought into the conversation, the prevailing view in the academy is that culture has no inherent meaning to itself. But that what, what is really going on in culture is a struggle for who gets to give meaning to all of life. In, in other words, life is a battle, is a battle between meanings. This is kind of Nietzsche's idea, and this idea that there's this power struggle. Who gets to define reality? But there is no inherent meaning to anything. Therefore, we're free to make up our own meaning about all of life. Christianity says no, that's not true. Christianity says that the reason popular culture and all culture matters is because it's rooted inescapably in what God has said. And it's stamped with meaning. And in reality, all people are in this tension, sometimes receiving, sometimes embracing, sometimes rejecting this meaning. In other words, you can put it this way, all of life is a story that's been written by God, and yet there are places where we're trying to erase what God has said and write something different. I'll I'll give you an example. Do you know that at Vanderbilt Hospital, nobody dies? My wife was a nurse there for a number of years, worked in the cardiac step-down unit. And one of the things that they're taught at Vanderbilt Hospital is that you never say that someone has died. Nobody dies at Vanderbilt Hospital. People expire every day. Now, it's fascinating. Even in, that, even in that language, there is a battle over meaning. See, the Christian, the Christian understanding of death is that it, death is speaking something to us. What death is saying is that things are not the way they were supposed to be. And I would argue that everybody in this room knows it. And yet the reality is, there are all kinds of ways that we try to fight against that message. We try to say that death is just a part of living. We try to say that that death is just natural. And yet, in our heart of hearts, we rage against death, and we know that it's not right, that it wasn't supposed to be this way. It's one of the reasons that we hate old people in our culture, because they're closer to death, and they remind us of our mortality. It's why we ship them off to special places where they can be disconnected from the rest of culture. It's why we isolate them in hospitals where most of us never go visit people. It's why we dope old people up on their last days so that, so that they don't have to even connect to death as it's coming. There's all kinds of ways that our culture tries to disconnect us and separate us from death and to say that it's not, that it's not preaching a message which is saying that life is not the way it was supposed to be. So you see? But Christians say, no, one of the things that death is proclaiming, whether we like it or not, whether we try to shut it out or not, death is proclaiming that all is not right with the world. And there are Christians who don't like that and want to reject it, and there are non-Christians who want to reject that. See, here's the point. 
Christians and non-Christians both are in this are in this tension with what God has said. Just because you're a Christian, do not naively think that you will believe and agree with and enjoy everything God has said. That's one of the most foolish, naive things that you can ever believe. The Bible teaches that Christians are full of sin. That it doesn't end. You don't suddenly become a perfectly holy person when you become a Christian. You still fight against what God has said. You still want to substitute your own meaning for what God has said. And this gets us to this third point. Talked about common grace, general revelation, and now the idea of idolatry. The the name that the Bible gives for this fighting against what God has said is this idea of idolatry. Idolatry is, is, is not merely when you make little gods and goddesses and you bow down and worship them. I don't know if any of you guys seen the movie Gladiator. A lot of you have seen that movie, right? And there's, there's a scene where, um, you know, the, Russell Crowe kind of sets up his little, his little, little figures and kind of bows down to them before he's going to go into battle. And, and we tend to think, oh, that's idolatry. That's not really relevant to us. But actually, what the Bible says is that idolatry is, is a, a hugely important concept. Idolatry, biblically speaking, is when we take something that God has made and we try to change the meaning that God has stamped it with. I'll give you an example. God has created human beings, the Bible says, to work. Work is not a result of sin entering into the world. Sin entering the world has affected work, but human beings were created to work. Work is a good thing. The goal of life is not to never have to work. As a matter of fact, the Bible says even before sin entered the world, Adam was given a job to do. He was to take the goodness, the beauty of the garden and extend it to the whole earth. This is why work matters to God. This is why it's important for you to do all kinds of things, not just read your Bible and pray. Okay? But what happens after the fall, because of idolatry, we tend to try to make work mean something that God didn't intend it to mean. God never intended your work to be the way you give significance to your life. And whenever we try to think that what makes us matter is the work that we do, we end up distorting what God has said. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. To do that means to make your work an idol. It means to try to derive things from your work that you can't get from your work. It's to disconnect it from God. Rather than seeing your work as a good thing, though spoiled by sin, given to you by God as a way to honor Him and glorify Him and reflect His goodness. Instead of seeing work as that, you disconnect it from God. Christians and non-Christians both do this. We disconnect it from God and we think that it has power in and of itself to give meaning to our lives. Or to, to give us a sense of eternity. You hear people talk about how, you know, at the, at the end of their life, they'll talk about their work as the thing that will last. Even after they're dead and gone, their work will last and give them sort of a sense of living beyond death. But work doesn't do that. Eventually, people will forget your work. No matter how powerful. I, you know, I, I actually used to be in a, a Christian rock and roll band. And I always love to tell students, um, I was in this band... We had five number one hits off of our first record. 
We beat out DC Talk for the Dove Award for New Artist of the Year, and I doubt that there's a person in this room that ever heard our music or has ever even heard of us. <laughs> I played with a guy named David Mullen. You may have heard of his wife, Nicole Mullen. You've probably never heard of David. Maybe the thing you've heard him um, do was he wrote the Larry Boy theme for VeggieTales. So maybe, maybe you heard that. But you never heard his records. His first record got the, the you know, one in the Dove Award for New Artist of the Year, beat out DC Talk. His first record had five number one hits. It won the Billboard uh, uh, Gospel Album of the Year Award. All these things, accolades, had more press for any Christian artist that year than, than one other group, except for one other group. And yet you've never heard of him, have you? So what are you hoping for? Why did you come to Belmont? What are you hoping that your work is going to do and bring you? Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. God says your work can't do that. It can't give you eternity. It can't give you meaning. It can't give you significance. And the more you try to, in, to get it to do something it was never intended to do, the more it will fight against you, the more it will bite you in the butt. <laughs> because if you're counting on your work to give you significance, you are so vulnerable. When you're rejected, when your work is rejected, it devastates you. Because you've tried to make it say something that it was never meant to say. All of life is this, tension of idolatry. Trying to make things say something they were never meant to say. I'll give you another good example, sex. The Bible says that sex is given to us to bond us to another person. It does not say that sex is merely a natural impulse. It does not say that sex is a way of saying to another person, I think you're hot. The Bible says that sex is a way of saying, whether you like it or not, sex is saying, I'm committed to you, I will be here for you. C.S. Lewis has this great illustration in uh, one of his books where he says, you know, people say that sex is just this natural thing, just like when you get hungry you eat, so when you feel sexy you have sex. Um, he goes, you know, people try and tell us all the time. Evolutionary biologists try to tell us that. And yet the reality is, he goes, imagine if you went to this village. You'd never been there before, but you get to this village and you, you go to this, this nightclub in the middle of the village and you get there and the lights are turned down low and there's this curtain and you begin to hear this music. Dum, 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 dum. And all of a sudden the curtain pulls back and there's something under this sheet and the music gets louder and more intense. Doom, doom, doom. And all of a sudden, the sheet is ripped off, and there's a cheeseburger there on a table. And everybody starts going nuts, hooping and hollering. He said, you would conclude that these people are either starving or that something is just really out of whack. Don't tell me that sex is just a natural thing like eating. You know that it's not. You know that it's more powerful than that. You know if you've ever had sex, you feel married no matter what you try to tell yourself. Now, Christianity says that's because God has stamped sex with meaning. And you can try and use it to say something else, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to bite back. That's, that's the Christian idea of idolatry. And again, this is not just something that we proclaim to non-Christians. This is something that Christians need to wrestle with. So, what are a couple practical applications? And then, and then some time for questions. We must give credit, again, speaking to Christians here, we must give credit where credit is due and not pretend that Christian culture is automatically better than non-Christian culture. The fact is that because of our idolatry, there are certain things 
that we tend not to see very well. Idolatry, actually the Bible says that idolatry blinds you from seeing certain things. It creates what are called delusional fields in your life. In other words, if you think that your work is what gives you significance, then when your work is not received well, a lie begins to form itself in your mind, which is, I have no purpose, I have no meaning, I'm a piece of crap. That's a lie. It's a delusional field. But the delusional fields always surround idols. Christians are also full of idolatry. Therefore, Christians are full of these delusional fields. That means that sometimes Christians do not recognize God's truth. They, they blind it. They sort of block it out from their existence. And often, the, see, the thing that's interesting is that the idols that Christians have sometimes are very similar to the idols that non-Christians have. Sometimes they're very different. And thus, there are things that non-Christians see more clearly than even Christians. That means that you don't just participate in popular culture if you're a Christian so that you can learn effective ways to evangelize, though you can do, it, it helps for that. It helps to know the stories that a culture is saying so you can enter into those stories and speak in a meaningful way. But beyond that, actually non-Christians and their cultural productions can actually help you understand truth about the world we live in and what's went wrong with it that sometimes Christians block out of their reality. And you know that's true if you've ever listened to Christian music because rarely does Christian music deal very powerfully with how screwed up things really are. You know that. The most powerful movies, the most powerful music that deals with the actual human condition is generally not made by Christians. And, and you, can, you, know, you can talk to Christians about this and they'll have all kinds of debates. I actually was uh, part of a committee that was going to try to bring a conference to talk about biblical world and life view to, to Christian artists in Nashville. It ended up falling apart. But it was fascinating. There were people on this committee that were heads of Christian record companies. There were people, the editor of, Christian, of Contemporary Christian Magazine was on this committee. There were people who were in charge of marketing for Christian radio stations. There were people who were in charge of Christian, um, Christian radio and, and Christian marketing and record companies. All these kind of people. And as you talk to them about this problem, that Christian music tends to, to not speak truthfully about the human condition, everybody agreed it was a problem, but everybody thought it was somebody else's fault. In other words, the radio people said, you, the record companies aren't producing any Christian music that speaks truthfully about sin and brokenness. But the record companies would say, well, if we did produce that kind of music, you wouldn't play it. But everybody knows it's a problem, but nobody knows how to fix it. But the fact is, Christians do not generally know how to reckon with how screwed up things are. And, and, and I think we really can learn a lot from people who don't, who don't embrace Christianity, but may see more clearly how screwed up things are, okay? There was a, a powerful article a few years ago in, Christ, in uh, sorry, not Christianity Today, in um, GQ magazine. It's worth looking for if you Google Walter Kern, K-I-R-N. He's an editor at GQ. And a few years ago, he decided to try this experiment where for 30 days, he basically participated in nothing but Christian culture. He only um, listened to Christian music. He only watched Christian TV. He watched, you know, Christian aerobic videos. He even ate Christian food. He found a book that sort of claimed to have found the diet that Jesus would have eaten. And so it was basically, what would Jesus eat? And, and he tried to do that all, all, all for 30 days. Um, he also only got his news from a Christian website, Crosswalk.com. And one day, the headline, the thing that, Christianity, that Crosswalk.com thought was the most important piece of news in that day was this. 
Christian pastor fined $1,000 for rebuking a lewd woman. <laughs> All the things that were going on in the world, that was their headline. And, and he goes, wow, <laughs> you know, a, a world in which, in which people rebuke other people, a world in which lewd women get rebuked, a world in which the word lewd is even used, must be a really comforting little tiny world to live in. And he goes, I'm tempted to jump off the ark. See, he calls Christian subculture the ark culture, A-R-K. So I'm tempted to jump off the ark and see what's going on in the real world. But he goes, why bother? Why spoil the illusion? Way too many Christians enjoy the illusion that we can create this safe little Christian bubble. And the fact is, we're not listening to what God is saying, sometimes through people that aren't Christians. Embracing these theological Christian truths can help us at that. Second, we must not be naive. All culture is religious. All culture is a map of reality attempting to interpret the world. And, and when we interact with culture, when we talk with our friends about music that we like or movies that we like or don't like, we're actually having a dialogue with them about these various maps of reality. Maps of reality. Advertisements are maps of reality. One of my favorite is the, is the MasterCard commercials, where, you know, basically the, the point is life is about having powerful experiences. And the most powerful experiences, of course, are spontaneous. And so you're going to need a MasterCard because... Heaven forbid, you're never going to be able to save up um, for, for anything powerful. Life takes MasterCard, right? The, uh, it, there's a map of reality there that life is about spontaneous experiences, and therefore, you need to have a MasterCard to be able to charge it so that you can uh, take life by the horns when it comes. That's a map of reality, right? And all popular culture, all culture is a map of reality. We need to realize that. Um, last point, in interacting with popular culture, Christians... It's helpful to us. It helps us better understand the idols of our culture and learn how to present the gospel in a meaningful way. But believe me, we need to hear popular culture for ourselves before we start thinking that we can use it to proclaim to other people. All right, we've got, um, got a few minutes. Thoughts or questions? Don't be shy. We have to have a little interaction for, for a convo. Yeah, where? Somebody over here. Oh, yeah, hey, can you stand up? I think it would be easier for people to hear. Yep. But how do you respond to the truth of like homosexuality and human beings and it being born and not, you know, Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, great question. Let me repeat this for the recording. The question how you've talked about finding, you know, all truth is God's truth. How do we interact with the truth about homosexuality, whether it's something that people are born with, whether it's a decision? Um, now my my take on that you know, again, as a Christian, there, there are some things that as a Christian I have to believe, but I don't find very popular to believe. And um, this is one of those areas where there's, from my understanding, there's still a, a great debate. I mean, there was a lot of publicity from a number of years ago about the so-called gay gene being discovered. But then there's also studies that, that um, have cast some doubt on that. So there's still, and even in the way that sort of modern people look at this issue versus postmodern people, uh, modern people tend to talk about it in terms of it connected to our physiology and to our nature. There's the whole you know, debate about are we the way we are because of our nature, the way we've been created, or our nurture. And I think with regard to this issue, there are some people, it's interesting, 20 years ago, 
when the modern worldview, science could explain all of life, really dominated, people would talk about homosexuality generally in terms of being born this way or it being part of our nature. Um, these days, there's actually a number of postmodern thinkers, uh, even in the homosexual community, that really bristle against that idea and want to talk about it as a, as a, as a lifestyle choice. And, and I think we're still living in a time when there's, even in the literature, both you know, pro-gay and, and not, there's still debates about that. So I think the verdict is still somewhat out on whether it's merely um, something that, that is a part of the way people are made or is it connected as well to their nurture or to experiences they've had of life. And I, I think there's even people that I know personally, uh, I know people where it's, it's pretty clear to them and to other people that know them that there is a huge impact by things that they've experienced in their life. And then there are other people that, that the kinds of things that people would use to explain homosexuality as far as um, nurturing factors, environment or traumatic experiences, whatnot, don't seem to be there. And yet the people would say, you know, I've, for as long as I remember, I have these desires, okay? So as a Christian, I, I say, wow, that, that's a complicated issue. I know as a Christian that the, that the impact, uh, that there is a, a true impact of our environment upon the choices we make and the way things we feel and believe. I also know that that the th way we're created from a Christian vantage point is not necessarily the way things were supposed to be. And so, you know, if, as a Christian, if we find, you know, irrefutable scientific evidence that homosexuality is genetic, it's not going to destroy my understanding of Christianity. My, my understanding of the brokenness of this world can embrace that. Now, behind that, I'm saying my understanding of the Christian scriptures is that homosexuality is not something that is the way God intended human relationships to be, right? And, and I'm sure there are people here that disagree with that. But as, a, as I think about the phenomenon, that there are people that feel that that's how God made them or that's the decision they've made, um, I, can, I can make sense of that, in a sense, through both my understanding of the brokenness that's come through sin entering the world, even physically affecting all people, and also the, the, the way environment and nurture affects us. So I, I don't know, that, that's probably not a full answer, but that's just some of the things that I think about when I think about that issue.